So with that, let me go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer and uh, and to his word. Lord, we do pray for these ministries. We do pray for avenues and ask God you would um, just bless your word as it goes out and use these people who are showing love to those who are hurting and struggling and confused. Lord, the the truth of your uh, son dying for them and also the importance of life and how it is um, important to you. We reflect your image and and Lord, preserving life is, um, Lord, a way to to show your image to the world. And I pray, God, that you would also uh, bless our missions conference coming up and the opportunity there. We do pray for those in our body, Lord, who are suffering and, and hurting and, and sick. I pray for the many hurting marriages in our congregation and families, Lord. We pray, Lord, you would help us to be promoters of peace in our homes. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, I had a few pictures I wanted to, to show you. I got a chance. We went to Alaska a few years ago, on a, um, and we saw a few of these. Anyone ever seen these live? You know what these are? Yeah, aurora borealis in this case. There's actually aurora that are on the southern hemisphere called aurora australis. Uh, but these are what we affectionately term the northern lights. Quite an amazing uh, experience to see these things up in the sky. Uh, just beautiful. Uh, these these are made up of what a substance called plasma. Now I know you all came this morning to get a little science lesson, so I thought I would give you one. Um, yes, leave it to scientists to take something so beautiful and try to put uh, uh, physics around it. But um, I have a reason for it, so just hang with me on it. But these aurora actually take place because there is what's called plasma that's in the atmosphere and, or excuse me, in the universe. Most of our universe is made up of plasma. Our sun is made up. Of plasma, and it spits out this plasma on a consistent basis. Uh, plasma, by the way, is a is a is a, a form of matter. You know, they're gas, solid, and liquid, right? Well, plasma is kind of like a gas, but it's made up of ionized, charged particles. And the sun, as it spits these particles outside of it, and they hit the the Earth's atmosphere, they uh, bang into oxygen and nitrogen atoms in the atmosphere, charge them up so that they form this plasma that we see. And what hap- what's happening is, as these atoms are excited. Uh, they, like the rest of us after we've had turkey dinner, they want to relax. They don't like to be highly energetic moving all around. So as they relax, they emit energy. That energy comes in the form of light and, and gives us these beautiful, beautiful images. This is one of my favorites here. And what, the, the lines that you see these things traveling along, those are the magnetic field lines in the Earth's atmosphere uh, around, that surround the Earth, and they contain this plasma. Um, there's a neat picture from this from the satellite looking down. Isn't that neat? Now, I bring this up because um, plasma physics was one class that I took in college. And of of many classes I had, this one really hurt my brain. It confused me greatly. Because what it was was this plasma behaves kind of like a gas, kind of like a liquid. It's got electronic and magnetic properties. And and when uh, they threw all these equations down on the board of like how to try to predict the behavior of this stuff, I'm looking at it going, what? What? I was very confused until go to the lecture, and we had a really good professor for this class, and he was able to show us how we could simplify these equations so that we could get somewhere with them, so that we can understand the behavior of this very interesting uh, material, this interesting substance. And the reason I, I bring this up is because uh, in studying uh, this passage that we were looking at last week and also today, with, with all the commands that the, the Jews had faced and the, the many instructions that they had through the law, it can be very confusing. In the same way, it would be very difficult to know, how do we sort through all this and understand what God really wants? 
In fact, if you look in the Old Testament, there's, there's over a thousand commandments. There's instructions on how to worship God, how to have a, the, the ceremonial laws. There's uh, re- laws on religious rights, on dietary laws, what we could eat and could not eat. There were moral laws that talked about uh, how we were to treat others. And all this instruction, it got fairly confusing. And, and rabbis would argue over which of these laws or commands were more important than the other. Did God have a priority? Were they all equally important? Did did some of them incur a stricter judgment than others? Scholars would debate over these things and argue. Some would try to come up with what is the greatest command or what is the most important. Uh, One uh, famous religious leader named Hillel, who lived just before Jesus, he attempted to summarize them in this statement. He said, What you yourself hate, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. Well, Hillel was about half right. Uh, he left a little tiny thing out there about loving God, but, but he tried, he was among many, tried to summarize and, and bring understanding. And in Mark 12, we're confronted with a situation, or Jesus is, of another law expert coming to him with the question. Jesus, you know so much. You tell us, what is the foremost commandment in the law? And Jesus, like my professor that wonderful day in plasma physics, when the clouds opened and parted and I could see the light, Jesus, in the same way, was able to simplify, summarize, and focus attention on what really mattered. And let's look again at his response in Mark 12, verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing. And recognizing that he, Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus says it right there. All the laws, all the instructions, all the commands, all the things that we have in Scripture can be summed up, can be focused on two specific commands. To love God with all your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. You get these two down and you've got it. That seems simple enough. You get down to these these two things, but but take a closer look, right? When we really look and see at what he is talking about here, these are more than just simple statements. Last week we focused our attention on the greatest or foremost command, which was to love God with all of our being, to treasure him to treat Him as most valuable, to love Him more than ourselves. And that love was, as we talked about, seen in a complete trust in God, a diligent obedience, and a passion for Him. And then in verse 31, Jesus gives a second command. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then He said, there's no greater commandment than these two. They encompass why we're here, the purpose of our existence. These two commands are the Christian manifesto. They are what, they are the heartbeat, really, of who we are. And we here at Calvary Bible Church, we need to know what they mean. And more importantly than that, we need to know how to live them out. Because if these two are the very foundation of Scripture, we need to understand them. So this morning, we're going to focus on the second commandment to love others. And I want to do that by first looking at its importance, the importance of loving others. How important is it to God? Secondly, the essence of loving others. What does it mean? 
And thirdly, the hindrance, the hindrances to loving others. Because there's a couple things that, that seem to get in the way when we really try to live this out. I want to talk about that this morning. Let's first look at the importance. Because what strikes me when Jesus gives this statement, right? The, the scribe asked for it, the greatest commandment, right? Single, one, right? Uno. But Jesus gives two. He didn't ask for a top ten, but yet Jesus still... He says, the first is this, and then he says, and the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. It would seem like, you know, if if I had an all-consuming love for God, isn't that enough? Shouldn't Jesus have just kept it to the one command? Why does he bring a second one in? Wouldn't it be a natural um, outflow of my love for God that I would love others? And yet Jesus says not only the second is this, but in Matthew's gospel, he says the second is like it. It's like the first. It's similar to. It's not exactly the same, but it's close to. And then even in Matthew's gospel, Jesus gave a more stunning statement. He said, on these two, not one, but on these two commands, hang or depend the law and the prophets. That's pretty elevated status. That those two commands not only summarize the Bible, but the Bible, the Bible hangs off of them. It depends on them. To love God with all our being and to love others as ourselves. These commands are both important. That Jesus would give it equal prominence, this command to love others, give it equal prominence to the command to love God with all our being. That that shows us that there's some importance to Jesus with this command. What I wanted to do was first go back to Leviticus 19. So if you could turn back there with me. Leviticus 19 is the first place in the Old Testament where this specific command is stated, to love your neighbor as yourself. And what I wanted to do was go back to the beginning of the chapter and see what was said before this statement. And as we do that, I want you to see if you can find, one, why did God make this statement? What was the purpose of it? And secondly, do you see anything here that's repeated? Both of those are very important to give us the context of this command. So let's go back to Leviticus 19. I'll be starting in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Every one of you shall reverence his father and his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. Let's get down to verse 11. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slander among your people. And you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. If you see there in verse 2, God gives here the basis for this instruction and how we're to treat him and one another. And it's based upon this statement. You shall be holy, for I 
am holy. We're to love our neighbor because we're to act like God. How we treat others is a reflection of who we worship. And that's why it's important to God. God is holy. Therefore, we, to, we are to be. He is righteous in how he deals with people. So we are to be righteous in how we deal with people. And that's why he keeps saying over and over in this section, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord your God. He's trying to emphasize that relationship. I have a relationship with you. I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your master. We have this relationship. And as such, I expect you to reflect that relationship in the lives of others. You're to be holy like me. You're to be holy as I am holy. You know, if we claim to have a relationship with God, if we claim to love Him with all our being, if we claim to be His children, then we're to act like Him, right? And especially in this area of love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, I'm sure many of you know the song, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Because God is love, we should love. And notice here how John assumes that if you're God's child, then you will reflect love of God to one another. Down in verse 11 of chapter 4, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The love, the one who loves God should love his brother also. Right? That love is really a reflection of who God is. In 1 John, a letter written to assure believers of their assurance of salvation, the letter is permeated, it's saturated with this idea of loving others. All through the letter, John keeps coming back to it. And he addresses this topic more than any other in his entire letter. Hopefully we can see that connection. If I am saved, if I love God, then I love others. That's part of my being because I am God's child. Sacrificial love really is, it's the distinguishing trait of the believer. We know John thirteen thirty five, right? Jesus said this, By this all men will know you're my disciples. How? How will people know we're Christians? How will people know we're saved? How will people know that God is in our life? By this all men, all the world will see you and they'll say, There's a Christian. I don't really like Jesus, but I can tell he does. How will they know that? Finish it for me. If you have love for one another. That's an amazing, astounding statement. We can show that we know God simply by how we treat one another. It is the defining mark of a Christian. We're to be holy because God is holy. God's name is affected by how we treat people. It's important to love our neighbor because we are to be a reflection of God in this world. And the world has a picture of God through us. That's a sobering thought. What does the world think? What must the world think when they look at people who claim to be Christians and their marriages are falling apart? What must the world think of God when they see conflict in the church or they see Christians suing one another or some softball leagues, church softball leagues I've been a part of? I wonder what must God think or what must people think of God if they were to see this going on? What must the world think of God when they see those who name the name of Christ turning a blind eye to those in need or to those who are suffering? What must the world think of God when they enter the church's door at times and they are ignored or they aren't welcomed? You know, loving your neighbor is important because you represent God in this world. And it's not only your reputation that's on the line, but his. 
depending on how you treat one another, how you treat others. And not only is it important to God that we love others because we represent Him, it's important to God that we love others because He cares, because He loves others. In fact, I'm... It's astonishing to me as you read passages that talk about love for God and, and how it's intermixed with how we treat other people. And even our worship, right? It's really important to God that our relationships are right before we offer Him worship. And you remember, how does God feel about worshiping Him if we have something going on, if there's a conflict going on with someone else? Remember what Matthew 5 says about that, right? If you're presenting your offering at the altar, Jesus said this, and there remember your brother has something against you. Hey, leave your offering there. I don't want to see it yet. You go be reconciled to your brother and then come present your offering. Right? Many of us know this passage. I would encourage you to think about that. God would want us to be loving others before we would come and say, I'm going to worship him now. I'm going to forget everything else. I'm going to focus my attention on him. I'm going to sing to him. I'm going to listen to his word. I'm going to fellowship with other believers. But yeah, I've got that thing going on with that other person over here. Yeah, actually, I hate their guts. But you know what? Right now here, I'm going to focus on God. There's There's a scathing rebuke that God gives to his people back in Isaiah 1 who have this kind of attitude. People were coming consistently every Sabbath, coming to worship God, coming to hear His Word, coming to offer sacrifice, coming to pray to God. And listen to what God said to them. When you spread your hands out in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Why, God? I thought that's what you want, is people coming to pray to you, to offer sacrifice, to worship you. And God says, I want none of it. I'm going to turn my eyes away. Why, God? Because your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. You see, God had a problem with their worship because... They were coming, smile on the face, every Saturday, offering prayer to God. And all through the rest of the week, they were taking advantage of those less fortunate. They were not upholding justice. They were being cruel to their neighbor, especially orphans and widows. They were not rebuking or dealing with evil, but were actually advocating it. And so they would come and have these wickedness going on in the week. And they'd come to church and say, God, we love you. And he says, I'm not listening. It's so important to God how we treat others. He will not listen to worship. He will not listen to prayers unless we are right with others. God had a huge problem with their so-called worship of him when they were abusing the less fortunate, when they were allowing evil to go unpunished. Listen to Micah 6.6. 6. Again, we see this mixture of how we treat others and, and how we treat God. What, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You see the progression in the questions that he's asking? 
How about, Lord, shall I bring a sacrifice? Is that what you want? Or, or a calf, a yearling calf? Or, or would you prefer thousands of rams? Or 10,000 rivers of oil? Or, or my firstborn? Is that what you want, God? What is most important to you? Listen to God's response. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You see how we interchange those things? Yes, he wants us to walk humbly before him, to worship him, to serve him, to obey him, to love him. But he said, you know what? I want to see justice. I want to see kindness. How are you treating others? That matters to me just as much. It's all connected. James 1.26 reiterates the point when James says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, that is, practicing religion, worship of God, duties performed in his name. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. He's going to summarize now. This is what true worship of me looks like. Visit orphans and widows in their distress. Keep oneself unstained by the world. Just a few verses later, James summarizes the scripture with what is called the royal or chief or kingly law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul said in Galatians 5.14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word in this statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see how important it is to God that we love others, that we treat others in the same manner as we would treat ourselves. But just what is, what does that mean? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Let's secondly look at the essence of loving others. You see, the, the Jews in Jesus' time, they took neighbor to mean fellow Israelite. If you look in Leviticus 19, as we read, they saw the many terms there, countrymen, your brother, uh, your people, uh, your neighbor, as referring to those that were fellow Israelites. And so what had happened was there became narrow focus that, okay, the, my neighbor is the one that uh, is my fellow countryman. In fact, uh, Jesus points this out in Matthew 5 when he says, you've heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So they had taken this idea, right, that my neighbor is my fellow countryman around me, but those outside of Israel, they're my enemy, right? In fact, it got to a point where the Samaritans were, were, uh, were hated. They wouldn't even associate with them. A law had actually arisen up within the Israelite uh, laws that they were not even allowed to associate or to go to the house of a Gentile. Peter said that when he visited Cornelius. They had put up laws, regulations, attitudes to separate themselves from the world. Only the people like us are the ones we're supposed to love. They're my neighbor. But they failed to see what was said just a few verses later in Leviticus 19. God said this, The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. They missed that one. Right? Even those that are among you, that live among you, even if they're not from Israel, you're to love them as yourself. You're to treat them as you treat one another. Do you guys see a message for the church here? I mean, what, what is our tendency at times? If we aren't careful, we can get caught into that same trap that they were in. If only those who are, are like me, only those who believe the way I believe, only those who live the way I live or look the way I look, that's my neighbor. 
Are we not tempted to get along only with those who love us or who show who are nice to us? Well, Jesus addressed that when he said right in the very next verse in Matthew 5, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Right? It's the same principle we saw in Leviticus 19. God is kind to both the evil and the good. Right? Who causes the sun to come up? Right? Not gravity. That's how man explains it. But, but God, right? And, and the rain, when it rains, when it rained a couple of days ago, did it just pour on your house? Did you just get a little bit on your yard and, and the neighbors maybe didn't know the Lord? Theirs were dry. What did God do? He sent it on everybody, didn't he? If God can do that, and if he does that, he shows kindness. He shows love toward those who hate him. He showed it toward us before salvation. Right? It's that same connection. This is how I am. This is how you're to be. Love others, even those who are your enemy. If Christ is in us, then we are different than the world. We should have and do have the capacity to love our enemies if the Holy Spirit resides within us. Not because we're anything great. Not because we figured it out. Not because we have achieved some enlightened and elevated state. But simply because God is our Father. He abides in us. And through Him, we are able to carry out this command. To love my neighbor means that my love needs to extend beyond the walls of my home. It needs to extend beyond the walls of my room. To extend beyond the walls of this church. Does that describe us as a church? Brothers and sisters, does that describe you? Jesus said you are to love them as yourself. And before we get into what that means, I want to spend a second talking about what it doesn't mean. Because in our culture, we've twisted that phrase a little bit. That to love my neighbor as myself means I first need to focus on myself. That, that I don't love myself enough. That I need to really see this as a command to love myself and that when I do, I'll be able to love others. Our world has purported that lie and it's, at, it's creeped in, crept into the church. Robert Schuler, in his book entitled Self-Love took, takes it even a step further. Listen to what he says. It's not a sin to experience a wonderful feeling of self-affection. It is a sin not to love what God loves. True religion teaches that God loves every person. No person will love God so long as he fails to love himself. Jesus Christ had this remarkable perception when he offered the 11th commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God and thy neighbor as thyself. A member of my church who was a millionaire lost his entire fortune. Worse yet, he lost all of his self-respect. And as his spiritual counselor aiming to rebuild his broken spirit, I asked him, Do you love God? Yes, was the reply. Do you love yourself? He said, no. Then you really do not love God. Did you catch what he's saying? If you don't love yourselves, not only will you not love others, you don't love God. (laughs) You know, and that idea is nothing new in the last 50 years. Actually, as I was preparing for this, um, I... Uh, read something from Calvin that I'll I'll share with you in a minute. But, you know, I would just ask you, is there anywhere in Scripture that would support that claim that if you don't love yourself, if you're not a pursuit of self-love, then you don't love God? 
What did Jesus say about that? Didn't he say something in regards, if you want to follow me, if you want to worship me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. 2 Timothy 3.2 declares the pursuit of self-love is really a sin, not something to, uh, to glory in. He said there, realize this in the last days, that difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. And he, this huge long list. But pursuit of loving self was not included in, in virtuous activity. And again, as I said, this fixation on self-love is nothing new. I came across it in reading one of Calvin's commentaries. He was talking about the problem in his day. Listen to what he said. We are all of us not only inclined to love ourselves more than we should, but all our powers hurry away in this direction. Nay, self-love blinds us so much so as to be the parent of all iniquities. There are those who would say, who would have, excuse me, the love of ourselves come first. The rule, they say, is superior to the thing regulated by it. And according to God's commandment, the charity which, with, which we should exercise toward others is formed upon the love of ourselves as its rule. Same thing there, right? The chief issue here is I love myself. Then I'll have the capacity to love others. Listen to what Calvin said in response. As if it were God's purpose to stir up the fire which already burns too fiercely. Naturally, as I have said, we are blinded by our immoderate self-love. And God, in order to turn us away from this, has substituted our neighbors, whom we are to love no less than ourselves. But some may say, well, hasn't psychology shown that we do have a problem with self-love? I mean, what about those people who say they hate themselves? Well, when people say they hate themselves, is it really that they do hate themselves or that they hate what others think of them? Or that they hate the circumstances that they're in? Or that they hate the situation in life that they find themselves? Or perhaps some consequences for bad decisions? I think that's more what they hate. What about those who commit suicide? I want to be sensitive here. But if you really think about it, the common motive is not self-hatred but self-love. Usually suicide is done as a means of escape. Or some have used it as a form of vengeance. Others have used it to, to escape from pain and suffering. And it is a painful thing. I've known several people in my own life who have taken their life. I had a friend in, in high school that his girlfriend dumped him and he went to her front lawn and banged on the door and then shot himself when she answered the door. Another friend of mine who was a colleague for a while, he... He couldn't take the pressures of work and raising a family, and um, he overdosed, died in his bedroom. And there are several others that I've known. You know, these are tragic things. Judas, he killed himself because of the guilt that he had, had encumbered his heart. These actions are those of, one, of, of loving oneself, not hating oneself. And I'm not making light of the tragedy of suicide at all. I'm sure many of you have experienced or know someone who has experienced the, the loss of somebody from this form of death. But I want us to think rightly about ourselves the way the Bible describes us, not the way our culture or the world would have us think about ourselves. Self-love is not something we need to work at. Jesus made this statement to love your neighbor as yourself because he already assumed that we do. He was making a comparison here, not calling us to command to love ourselves. He's saying we already love ourselves, and that's the degree to which we're to love others. 
Ephesians 5.29 shows this, that we, that we already do love ourselves. Because Paul says there, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Right? We make sure to provide for ourselves, to feed ourselves, to protect ourselves, to get the best health care we can. Right? To protect ourselves from harm. And I, I like how one pastor described this, uh, loving your neighbor as yourself. Listen to the picture he, he gives of what this looks like. He said, it, it seems to demand that I tear the skin off my body and wrap it around another person so they feel that I am that other person. And all the longings that I have for my own safety and health and success and happiness, I now feel for that other person as though he were me. Right? I've heard the definition of empathy is your pain in my heart. I mean, it's that idea. Loving your neighbor as yourself is, is not just I won't be mean to them or I'll be nice to them, I'll be cordial. It's, it means that you would do for them what you would do for yourself. Right? Who in here would take the smallest piece of cake? Right? We would offer the biggest to another, right? Who in here would, would be uh, like a token handshake or a, or a su- uh, superficial smile? As one pastor said, to love your neighbor as yourself means to pursue meeting the physical and spiritual needs of one's neighbor with the same intensity and concern as one naturally does for oneself. Right? You, you meet your needs, I meet my needs with a great deal of priority. It's important to me. Do that for others. And I would just ask, you know, again, let's reflect on this a minute. How are we doing? How are you doing? With this, would you characterize how you treat other people with that kind of a love? You know, when I'm out in public with my disabled daughter and I'm pushing her in her wheelchair, or last night I had her on a grocery cart, and um, you know, I see other people's eyes. I see when they stare at her as we go by, and some of them, it's with a look of repulsion or disgust. <laughs> that hurts. That really hurts. You know, may we not ever be like that. May we not be like the world. Those in need, may we have compassion. May we treat them as Jesus did. What did he do when he came upon those who were suffering, those who were hurting, those in sin? He didn't just give them some nice words or a flowery speech. He definitely did not walk away from them. Right? I think of the blind man in John 9. I think of Artemis. I think of the ten lepers crying out to him. Jesus responded in action, didn't he? 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love with word, or with, de- with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Ask yourself, how much time or resources or effort do you give to those who are in need? You know, we have many wonderful ministries that are a part of Calvary Bible Church that we support that are our hands and feet into a world of people who are in need. I think of Children's Hunger Fund, which is currently where Kempis is working. You know, they, they pack food uh, packs for churches around the world so that these churches may not only help with a specific and very important need in people's lives, but through that they would bring them the gospel. You know, they would love for more of us to show up and help them pack these things. I've gone down there and they have these huge bins of food. And, you know, they're, we're trying to get it all into these packs. They would love for more help. There's a great ministry here that as part of our support, Dee and Muriel uh, work with the deaf and deaf blind over in Highland Park. You know, they would love for more people to show up and help with cleaning or weeding or putting things away or just spend time with these people. 
Imagine not being able to see or hear. What kind of world is that? Hope Again in Hollywood is a gospel-focused ministry to help those who have either been abused or have come out of prison or suffered through the struggle with drugs or are homeless and they're trying to get back on their feet. You know what? Go down there one Saturday and offer to help do something in the office. Offer to help clean or do maintenance or to be a counselor. I guarantee they would find a spot for you. Olive Crest is a window into the world of the neglected child. They facilitate and coordinate foster care and adoption. Wonderful ministry. It provides opportunities for, for these things. And many of our church in our church have taken advantage of it. But you know, there's more we could do. Maybe you can't take a child into your home, but maybe you could spend a day with one. I mean, think about that. Think about Kempis if he didn't have his grandmother to live with a man who murdered his mother and the abuse. But praise God, he had someone that took him out of that. What would you do if you were in foster care? What would you want? Avenue's pregnancy clinic, right? The bottle, the baby bottle people, right? You know, they have a tremendous gospel-focused ministry to share the truth of God's Word and salvation in Jesus Christ to women who are in a very difficult circumstance. They would love for us to come down and volunteer to help, to counsel, to help clean the office, to participate in it. You know, they send out mailers. They do all kinds of stuff. Volunteers will be welcomed there. The Hollywood Church is right in our own backyard, a ministry, an outreach, a church that we're a part of that they would love to have some help as well. I'm sure Chris and Sarah Barksdale would, would be able to find something for you to do if you were just to, to visit there one day. Johnny and Friends is a wonderful ministry to the disabled. Had a chance to visit there a couple of times. You know what? They could use some volunteer help as well. Calvary here supports many missionaries. Maybe it'd be difficult for you to give time in those ways, but but there are missionaries here who would love to have somebody that just adopts them. So you know what? I'm going to pray for them consistently. I'm going to send care packages. I may even try to visit if if the Lord allows for that. That's why you need to be here March 3rd. You need to come and you need to get to know these folks. These folks who are sacrificing to spread the gospel around Southern California and the world. That's a great act of love. And we can participate in that. So I would encourage you, just come. Come to that. We have a ministry right across the parking lot here, Burbank Healthcare. I don't know if you knew this, but we have a group of people that go over there every Sunday and they hold a little church service. Some folks play some music and there's a little message to these folks who are dying. And often many of them don't have visitors. Oh, you could really show your love to them by just showing up one Sunday and, and bring a, your child and maybe have them draw a card and just visit with them for 10 or 15 minutes. Play cards, have tea. You would not believe the impact you could have. In addition to volunteering your time, we need to be committed to pray for these various ministries. We need to be committed to give more to these ministries. Fill up that baby bottle. Take the opportunities to do that. There are many people in need in this world. And as we reach out to those needs, we show the love of Christ. And not only is our love to be focused on those who are in need, but remember too that there are others, right? Jesus talked about this. How do you treat those who hate you? How do you treat others here in this body? Are are there any conflicts going on? Is there anyone here in this body you couldn't look in the eye and smile with? Or are there people that you avoid? How about your spouse? How about your children? 
How about those in your home, your extended family? How others focused are you? I heard a sermon last week on this topic and uh, <laughs> he asked a very penetrating question and he, he said, when you came in this morning, did you think of anyone but yourself? Ouch. Made me think a little bit. You know, I know some of these questions or some of these issues may bring some conviction. Now, my intent here is not to guilt you into doing stuff. But I, I just want us to reflect on this is so important to God. It, it reflects His image and who He is to the world. It is a sacrificial love. And loving my neighbor is hard. To love someone in need is difficult because that means I need to give my own time and sacrifice and resources. And, and sometimes it's uncomfortable being around certain people who are in need. Sometimes I'm not sure how to, how to interact with them, especially if they're disabled. Especially maybe if they have a, a mental condition. Or maybe they smell funny. It's hard to be around people like that. It's hard to be around my enemy and love them because they have hurt me. They hate me. It's hard to love those in my family. It's hard to love those who I have a relationship with because the closer I am to someone, their sin against me hurts even more. And if I'm supposed to love others, that means I'm risking something. I'm having to risk the potential to be hurt myself. I love what R.C. Chapman said in that regard. He said this, If I have been injured by another, let me think to myself, how much better to be the sufferer than the wrongdoer. Yes, loving others is painful, risky, time-consuming, but listen to what C.S. Lewis said about this. It is easier and less risky not to love. And this is a comment that he made about this. To love at all is to be vulnerable, he said. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. I think he's right. You know, our, our love is often conditional, isn't it? It is often predicated or, or based upon whether we feel we're being loved. You know, our self Absorbed culture has fed this notion that, that I need love. I need to be loved. And then I'm more capable and able to give love. We're described like a, like a cup that needs to be filled. And once that cup is filled with love and with affection and these things, then I'm able to have something within my cup to give to others. And this type of thinking shows itself in statements like, I, I need my husband to love me and to lead me, and then I will respect and follow him. I need my wife to respect me before I can love her. I need my children to obey me in order to parent them better. I need my friend to apologize before I can forgive. I need to be loved so that I can love others. Maybe one of these statements has crept into your thinking. But you know what? When you become focused on what you're not getting, on what you need or perceive to need, then you miss the solution to the whole problem. The Bible doesn't tell us to love others because we need love. 
It tells us to love others because we need to love. Did you catch that? We don't need love. We need to love. That's why we're commanded to do that. Because God has, he's not designed us to be cups. He's designed us to be mirrors. We're not made so that we need to be filled up with all these perceived needs and and desires and then we're able to dish out. No, we're supposed to be mirrors that reflect the image of God to a lost and dying world. You've been designed to be a giver and not a taker, right? We know what Jesus said. It is better to give than to receive, right? He's telling us right there, you've been designed and will be more satisfied and content if your focus is outside of you, not what you're not getting. The commands to love Scripture are always outward. You love your neighbors. You love your husband or your wife. You love your brother. You love your enemies. We're never commanded to receive love. We're only commanded to give it. And if you struggle with uh, low self-esteem or suicidal thoughts or, or depression or anger or bitterness. The solution is not to try to find out what you need in life and what you're missing that's not being met. The solution is to love God and love others. That's what will fix you. That's what will deal with those struggles that you're having because ignore Satan's attempt to distract you over here with the lights. Again, the solution to our struggles when, we, when we're feeling bad about ourselves or sorry for ourselves is not to focus on ourselves. That will only dig a deeper hole for you. The focus needs to be, I need to focus on loving others and loving God because that's how God's made you. And when you do that, that's when you'll find the contentment and satisfaction you're looking for. I remember uh, talking to someone last week who had uh, committed some time to one of the ministries I mentioned earlier. And they said, you know, after I was done serving there, I felt so good. <laughs> it was so encouraging. That's because she was doing what God made her to do. You know, I think Jesus made this point in the well-known parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, right? You remember that where the, the law expert and another one came up to him and said, you know, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what? you know the scripture. How does it read to you? The guy says, he basically quotes the, the Shema, and, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Probably you know, a little smirk here. Hey, I don't know what, I know what it is. And then Jesus said, yep, that's right. And then the guy wishing to justify himself then he says to Jesus, just who is my neighbor? Right? Kind of, he's saying, I'm, I'm treating people right. I'm, I'm good to those around me. Oh, who is my neighbor, Jesus? And Jesus begins the story, right? He talks about this man who was on a journey, who was beat up and robbed and left on the side of the road to die. And we're thinking, yeah, that, that makes sense. Our neighbor is the one who's, who's in need, right? He has, has needs. And so we would think, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But but then Jesus introduces these three other people into the story. He talks about these, this priest and this Levite, right, who went by and they didn't give the guy any help. And then the hated Samaritan comes by and he takes care of this guy. He, he binds his wounds and takes care of him. He takes him to the inn, stays the night with him. Then he pays the innkeeper money enough for the guy to stay at least another month and says, hey, if he has any other charges, put that on my tab. A great example of loving someone as yourself. So you would think, you know, Jesus is going to focus attention on, so who was the guy in the story that was our neighbor, the one in need, right? But Jesus didn't do that. He flipped it. And he asked the guy, so who was the neighbor to that man? Right? The guy who helped. Who proved to be the neighbor? 
You see, we often might be focused on ourselves so much, we're figuring out who am I to help? Who is my neighbor? And the real issue is you be the neighbor. The focus isn't on you. It's on everybody else, right? Jesus is talking here about you need to love someone in need, not whether that person qualifies to be loved. It's not who your neighbor is, it's who you are. Jesus turned the parable right back at him. Are you that kind of guy? Because everybody has needs, right? Everyone. They have physical, spiritual, emotional needs. All of us have uh, issues in life where we're struggling. Everyone in the world has that. Our job is to find those needs and to help meet them, to love that person as I would love myself. That is to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, there's a lot more that, that could be said here from Mark 12. And, you know, again, I, I, I struggled this week going through this, asking myself the same questions. But there's something else I want us to see here in closing, and that is to look at the lawyer's response. Look at verse 32 of Mark 12. How did the lawyer who asked Jesus this question, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus? Jesus gives it. Let's see what he says in response, because I think his response may reflect where some of us are at here today. In Mark twelve thirty-two, the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbor, one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Interesting response this man gives. He, he recites back what Jesus says and then said, you know, that is more important than external religion. That is more important than a focus on good works. But Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom. And there's an encouragement and a warning in that statement. To that man who was thinking was, you know, being reoriented, understanding what God really wants is the heart. He's not just interested in external activity, but, but obedience from the heart. But the man was on that path. He had that understanding. He had a knowledge of a few facts about what God wanted, but he wasn't there yet. And that's the warning. He says, you're not far from it. You're not in though. And I think there may be some here that, that have that same idea that I know a lot about Jesus. I know about what he wants for me. I know about the most important commandments. Yeah, to love God and love people. But you don't go any further than that. You're like this lawyer. He almost got it. But almost is an infinite chasm between heaven and hell. He wasn't there yet. And there are some of you carrying the burden of sin, like Kempis talked about earlier this morning, the, the bitterness that he had, the hatred. And he was being ground into the dust with it. His soul was being eaten alive. Some of you may be there. Some of you may have a weight and guilt of sin in your life and you don't know what to do with it. Jesus offers release. <laughs> he offers freedom. He offers hope. Some of you may be listening to this again thinking, I, I can't love that way. But Jesus offers freedom. If any of you are weighed down with sin, Jesus can lift it. And you know what? He lifted it all the way onto his back as he was being nailed to that cross. Seek him while he may be found now. You know, this scribe, what he should have done after reciting that, where should he have been? 
What should have been overwhelming his heart with the realization, God, I can't do this. This is impossible. How in the world can I love like this? I am a wretched sinner before you. But you know what? He made a statement. Jesus commented and he walked away. Don't know if Jesus's words permeated his heart. Don't know if we'll see him in heaven or not. But at least in this instance, he did not hit the dirt like the publican, like the tax gatherer who went into the temple and asked, you know, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what God is after. That's all he is after for us to simply acknowledge that, Lord, I am a wretched sinner before you. I have nothing to offer you. And I know there are many here that have heard this message over and over and over. And you're saying, how often are they going to keep talking about this? Would everyone else just get saved so we can move on? I remember a guy telling me that. And then he realized, you know what? I'm the guy that needs to be saved. You know, God puts these commands out in this instruction not to weigh us down with some effort that we need to do to try to earn his favor, but to show us just that we are desperate. We're desperately in need of a savior who can equip us, who can fill us, who can change us, who can move us to do these things so that we can truly reflect the image of God, which is what he made us for. You know, we are to be a mirror But the problem is sin is like this mud that covers that mirror. And it's only through the blood of Jesus on the cross that we have a cleanser, a a Windex of sorts that can begin to clean that mud off so that, oh yeah, there is a little bit of God. Again, we're not a cup, we're a mirror. And Lord, to those of you who, who do know and love the Lord and just recognize again as all of us, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We don't love our neighbors like we need to or should. But take this message not as a a beating to guilt you into it, but but take this as, you know what? The Holy Spirit is in you. And you remember the fruit of the Spirit? What was the first one on the list? Love. Love. Through God's Spirit in my life, I can fulfill and love others as He's called me to. I can love Him as He desires. Paul said a little earlier in Galatians 5.16, Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Spend time with the Lord. Drink in His word. Continually repent and confess your sin before God. Pursue holiness. Spend time with others. And as you do, God's Spirit will work in you. And you will love Him and others as He's called you to. Abide in Christ. And He will give you the strength to do what we could not do on our own. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, command us, Lord, to obey your will and give us the will to obey your command. Father, we are um, desperate, broken creatures. Those to whom, uh, Lord, it is a struggle to, to love others because of the great love we have for ourselves. And Lord, you just tell us to channel that love for ourselves toward others to treat them as we would want to be treated. God, we confess, Lord, we need you to help us do that. We need your spirit to work in us that we may be those who love you with all our heart and those who desire and carry out and work at loving others as ourselves. God, you are great. You are wonderful. Move in us, change us. Make this a church, God, that would reflect the image of your Son to a lost and dying world. Help us to be known, Lord, not only as a church that that preaches the Bible and teaches from the Bible, but lives it out and that loves the author of this Word and that loves your Word because we love you. And, And Lord, help us, God, to be a church 
that is known for our love for others. Oh, change us, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.